Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. It's Nat and John, and we're here with another episode of This Is Not Church uh, with this awesome, awesome guy, uh, C. Baxter Kruger. And before we came on, um, we were jokingly giving our, our bios and introductions. And I thought, man, I'd, I'd let, I'll let Baxter do his own. What do you say, Baxter? Let her rip. <laughs> oh, man. This is church. That's yeah. my first. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not conceding institutional Sunday morning to be called church. This is church. Amen. Amen. This is the Celtic mind inside the belly of the Latin beast. Oh, and wow. the, Latin, the Latin beast has lost its mind, is self-referentially incoherent, and it's wrestling it's, it's wrestling with uh, rampant deism. And the Celtic mind is all about the presence, not absence of Jesus. And he never goes anywhere without his Father or the Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. the question that I have for the Western church is, do you believe in the real absence of Jesus? Or do you believe he's present? If he's present, then what we need to do first is be quiet. <sighs> like in John 5, a classic moment. Jesus heals a man that's been sick for 38 years. Every single day, the the Sanhedrin, or at least the Pharisees and Sadducees, maybe not the whole Sanhedrin, but the religious leadership of Israel, every day on the way to the temple, passed that guy by and didn't do anything to help him. Jesus mm-hmm. walks over and says, do you want to be healed? And the guy's going, well, I, I, he says, rise. Take up your pallet and walk, and God does. And then the Pharisees are in, well, like you healed on the Sabbath. And you can imagine, Jesus, look, I just helped a brother who you hadn't helped in 38 years, and you're angry with me because I did it on the Sabbath. He said, don't you understand? My father works till now, and I work. Mm. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that himself is doing, and the son can do nothing other than what he sees the father doing, I, I'm just I'm reading through this. This uh, we do a I do a first Tuesday of the month live podcast, and we're working through John's Gospel. And we're now starting chapter six coming up. But I, what just blew my mind, and I think this is the word of the Lord to to us in America and and in the Western Church. Jesus is looking at these guys. They got this massive program going on. Now it doesn't heal anybody which is the real controversy. But when Jesus says, I only do what I see my father do, comes a huge question. What the heck are you doing? Mm. What's all this stuff? So what Jesus says, I'm here now with my father, with the Holy Spirit, and I've been inviting every one of you to come participate in what I'm doing. And what we're doing, or you can keep playing church. Wow. You can keep playing kingdom. And what you get when you play kingdom is only a kingdom that you can create, which we have now done successfully, and it's bored us to tears. And it's okay. We're right on schedule, not an ounce of condemnation for any of us. It's just we have to recover a vision of the presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit on earth now at work. So for me, I, I look at my life, and I think one way of interpreting my life is, I have played checkers my whole life, Mm. trying to get myself crowned, acknowledged, accepted, applauded, and in, with, and through my self-centered, self-promoting, 
checker moves, the present Father, Son, and Spirit, especially the redeeming genius Holy Spirit, in, with, and through my self-centered, self-promoting checker moves, they have been playing three-dimensional Trinitarian kingdom chess. Mm. Now, when wow. now when you glimpse that in the midst of all your grandiose, <laughs> right? We're riding, you know. When you glimpse that, it, it, for me, it's just like, okay, now it's time to shut the you know what up. Mm-hmm. So, Jesus, here's, here's my prayer. <laughs> I'm not doing anything because the last thing I want to do is create something that I'm calling the kingdom of God that has nothing to do with what you and your Father and the Holy Spirit are doing on Earth right now, all over the planet. So give us eyes to see how you function, how you operate, and what do you want us to do? And that's it. Every morning you wake up and you say, Lord Jesus, you give me another day. What are we going to do today? Yeah. What do you want to do? I don't care. I don't have an agenda. What do you want me to do? Oh, you want me to fix the lady's tire? I got it. I'm on it. You want me to do a podcast? On, oh, oh, my grandson calls, three years old. Hey, Doc. Come fish, <laughs> come fish with me today. That's the word of the Lord, you know. Amen. Like, and you and you walk this through. That's church. That's kingdom. And if we gather on a day during the week, that's what we talk about. Let me tell you what I saw in the faces of people that I thought were my enemy this week. Mm. Let me let me tell you what I saw in my grandson. Let me tell you what what. And then and then I lost my freaking mind for three days and fell off the turnip truck. And I, and I'm kind of easing and limping back in on, on you know, to gather because I need to hear from Nat and John again to remind me of who I am and who's present, and not absent. Mm. Now, these, these are simple, simple things, but very much Celtic, very much the ancient Trinitarian apostolic vision, and they stare us in the face. Yeah, with our people, I've had people that have been listening to me uh, for thirty years. Like Baxter, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But I, you just got to tell me what to do. You got to tell me what to do. I'm like, well, you need another thirty years if you think that that's what we're going to do now. Yeah. <laughs> right. if, you learn, if you learn anything from me, you learn that Jesus is present, not absent, and His presence, not without His Father and the Holy Spirit, is in you. You ask Him, "Are you in me, Jesus?" And you will hear Him say, "I am." That's that's your manna. And then you say, Jesus, what are we going to do today? Do you think for one second I'm going to stand back and say, this is what the kingdom of God will look like for you guys tomorrow morning? Yes, and if you're, not, if you're not doing it that way, then I'm passing judgment on you? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Jesus is Lord. The Lord of lords and the king of kings, the alpha and the omega, the creator and sustainer of all things. And he's here in us. It's about you- learning to walk with him. Well, do you think then, because here, here's the first question that springs to mind, um, I, the Western mind, the Roman, Latin mind, um, forever loves to quantify, forever loves to define, you know, we're, we're rational or so we think. And so would you say that the, the, one of the largest mistakes that the Western church has made is, is we've just made God too small? Yeah, I mean, and, and I would go underneath that one, one note, and that is, that we haven't listened to Jesus. We we haven't. I mean, John's gospel is just he's at pains. I mean, on every every verb, every word, everything in this whole gospel is screaming at us that this is about Christ in you, 
And then you ask the question, well, who is Christ? Well, the word Christ means anointed one. It re- really, it means anointed son. So you've got in me is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, yeah, our vision of God has been G-O-D, the faceless, nameless omni-being up there somewhere in a place called heaven who's watching us from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart. Mm. So here are the things you got to go do to make it right. And you got to get it perfect. And we, so let me give you a concrete illustration. About six months ago, uh, during, during the week, it's like eight o'clock in the morning. I'd gotten my coffee and I sat down in my chair and I'm reading. And I hear the, the garage door go up behind me. And I think, well, who, in, it's got to be one of my three kids. And then I hear the doorbell go off like 50 times. <laughs> so I know it's Cooper, who at the time was two and a half years old. And two seconds later, I hear the door open. He sees me sitting, see the back of my head. He comes flying around, and he, and he sees that I'm reading a book. So he grabs the book, crawls up in my lap, and wants to read. And then Caroline, who's the oldest, she's, she's four. She comes in, and she sees Cooper in my lap reading the book. So she goes and grabs a book, a little packet of five little small books, and crawls up in my lap. And then they start to fight over which book we're going to read first. And I'm, I'm just sitting there. I had no idea they were coming. And I just start crying. And I'm like, and then I, I processed on a little bit. I said, this is so beautiful because this is the way, this is the, way the kingdom works. Because it, it never crossed their minds that they weren't wanted, delighted in, loved. And so they did the most natural thing in the world. They just ran, flew up in my lap, and we started reading. And I, I, I played it forward a little bit in my imagination. I thought, what would happen if someone whispered to Caroline Cooper that Doc, that's what they call me, that Doc is mean as a snake and doesn't really like them at all. And they start wondering if that's not the truth, and then they start believing it's the truth. And so Laura, their mother, our daughter, says, hey, we're going to see Doc and Gigi, and Carolina Cooper sitting in the back seat, triggered. Like, what are we going to do? So Caroline says, whatever we do, Cooper, do not ring the doorbell 50 times. <laughs> so they ease in, and she says, I know what we'll do. We'll go in through the kitchen door, and then we'll go around the side through the kitchen, come out the other side and slip in the back room so Doc doesn't even know we're there. And we'll play quietly. And suppose they're back there playing quietly and some uh, reverend comes to them and says, you know, I know how you can get Doc on your good side. But you have to do it perfectly. And I'm going to lay out the steps for you. And Cooper and Caroline are looking like, okay, 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 now we're going to do it perfectly. And, and they just play it forward a couple of years. They do it perfectly. It doesn't work. It's, and I thought, man, it's, that's how simple this is. We were lied to about the character of God. I mean, there is not a thing any human being can do on earth to change how the Father, Son, and Spirit feel about them. Any, any more than Caroline and Cooper. And, and, and now I've got another grandson called Jeb, a new, a new baby coming, Lucy, any more than they can do anything to change how I feel about them. That's not what this is about. God hasn't changed. 
We're the ones that are in the back room listening to a bunch of reverence tell us what we got to do to get God, which is a mythological creation, to bless us and to love us. When the whole time he's sitting in the chair loving us to pieces. And it doesn't I'm not saying he won't get after us, he won't discipline us, but don't get the character of God confused with our behavior or lack thereof. He is everlasting, as Athanasius said. Nicene Creek, I got to tell you this. <laughs> we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in my the pastor that I had growing up in the Presbyterian Church is still there 50-something years later. And he began all those years when I was growing up, he began every single one of his pastoral prayers with eternal God, our Father, and then he would launch. And I remembered the phrase, and when I started studying the Nicene Creed, I almost fell out of my chair. I could see the difference between the West and the early church right there. I'm my pastor, and he's not an aberration. He's just doing what he was taught. Eternal God, our Father. Nicene Creed is we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. The difference is the placement of fatherhood. Eternal God, our Father. Well, then that begs the question, what is the godness? If it's not father, well, that's not that's not Nicaea. That's not Athanasius. They were following the apostles. In every one of the of Paul's epistles, he begins by talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point being, and Athanasius pointed this out uh, in his uh, treatment against the Arians. Arius taught that there was a time that God was not father; that He became father when He created His Son. Athanasius says the Holy Trinity is no created being. God has never been God and then became Father. He is the eternal Father of the Son in the Holy Spirit. That means that everything that God is, thinks, and does flows out of his fatherhood and sonship, that filial relationship. That's foundational. You don't violate that. You don't flip it around. If you flip it around, then you've got this beautiful picture of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but that's not the fundamental character of God. What is it? What is it then? We can backfill that, but when you go with John and Paul, and certainly, and, and then follow that through with the early churches we were talking about, um, you're going to start off with this beautiful vision of the Father, Son, and Spirit and they are lovers from all eternity because they love each other. And then they create us in and out of and through and by and for that love. They don't change. We don't have the power to change how they feel about us. We have gotten deceived and lost and hiding in the back room. And what do they do? Jesus says, I'm going in, Father. I'm going to go into the back room and I'm going to get to the bottom. And the Father says, Son, you know, I got you back. And the Holy Spirit's like, well, I'm not being left out of this. So Jesus goes in, and this is John's gospel. Jesus becomes flesh, not just human. He becomes flesh not to establish a relationship with the human race that he doesn't have. He already has a relationship. We were created in him. He's going inside our delusion. That's what flesh is. And he's going to enter into our delusion by submitting to us, and we're going to kill him, and we're going to damn him. We're going to pour our wrath out. We're going to lift him up on the cross in rejection and apostasy and cursing him, and we're pushing him back. And and 
right in that moment in John's gospel, you see what you see the beauty of everything. It's that the Father in that moment is doing exactly what he has always done through all eternity, and that is be the Father of his Son who will not forsake him. And he's affirming his fatherhood of us. And he says, I accept you, Baxter, as the one who rejected my son, and I turn your rejection into your adoption. I turn your apostasy, human race, into the new covenant. In fact, I will take your murder of my son and meet you there and embrace you and turn that into the everlasting mercy seat. Now you can sit and see who I really am. I'm not waiting on you to get good enough. I've met you at your very worst. It's just, it's, it was, we've gotten so twisted that when we hear the gospel, we, we think it's some sort of new age or something. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, that's yeah. something you wrote yeah. a while back that the, uh, you know, this meme has made its rounds around Facebook a bunch, but it was basically the false gospel has been preached for so long that when the true gospel is preached, it sounds like heresy. And I've said, you know, you're one of the first guys who introduced me or made, you know, let me take that back. Not introduced me. You exposed in me a severe lack of exposure to um, any of the church fathers. There was a deficit in my education in the evangelical churches where I was raised. I didn't have any clue. And so I remember reading, um, it might have been Jesus and the Undoing of Adam. And I remember okay, Athanasius, who's this? And next thing I know, I'm buying on the incarnation. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm tripping into this. And the next, I've got volumes now of patristics and desert fathers. And, and I'm like, and so I, I don't think I coined this, but I don't remember hearing it someplace else, but I have begun to tell people that orthodoxy is the new heresy because it's not, it's not new. It's not new age. It's not, it's, it sounds like it because we've bought the lie for so freaking long and we've placed God in some distant heaven and then set up this obstacle course to get to him. I, I also don't want to forget to say we this. I have our dogs. Yeah, we wouldn't, you know, and I, I thought I learned a lot about God or I thought I understood God when I had children. And now I have two grandchildren and I think I didn't know a thing. That's exactly until right. I had the grandchildren. And now they come to my house. They do the same thing, by the way. They don't call me doc. They call me Papa. They can kick my door in. They could light my house on fire. They could beat the dog. I don't, I don't know that I've ever raised my voice to them and they're six and three and they're sometimes terribly, terribly annoying. And I love them so much, (laughs) but it would never cross my mind. It would actually break my heart to see any of them look at me as though I disapproved of them. Now that's the point. Mm. So if you're evil, yeah, it's real simple. The whole strategy of evil is, uh, we're going to, and, in their mind, we're going to separate the father-son relationship so you can see Jesus and not see the father. And we're going to make it make them so different that the father turns his back on the son on the cross, which is, right, which is utter, crazy, utter blasphemy. And then we're going to separate. It's the opposite of John fourteen twenty. In that day, you will know that I'm in the father. You're in me and I'm in you. So the evil one comes along and says, well, we're going to rip the father-son relationship apart. Then we're going to rip apart any notion that we could be included in Jesus. And then we're going to rip apart any notion that Jesus is in us. If he's in anybody, it's in the Christians and only in church stuff. Mm. So that leaves out our entire humanity. So we don't actually have anything to say to the guy like a couple of years ago, my son and I were playing golf with some buddies. We're on the fourth tee. It's a par three. We're waiting 
uh, for the group in front of us to clear, I look over in the neighborhood where I live and I see smoke and I knew instantly that's not leaves. And I said, son, that's a house fire. And he and I jumped in our car and our friend David jumped in his and went flying through the neighborhood. We got there. And by the time we got there, the entire garage was engulfed and there was a car inside and a woman comes running out the front door screaming about her dogs and my son and David run around the back, scale a six foot fence and get one of the dogs comes back around by the time uh, you can hear the fire truck coming, it comes and a young guy who couldn't have been more than five seven, maybe five eight already got his gear on grabs a hose, walks over and, one, and the other guys are monitoring something and the civilian grabs the hose behind him and pulls it so he's not working against the hose and this thing is billowing up, and I'm thinking they're going to lose three, four houses here. That car's going to blow up. And he hit that nozzle, and he walked up in that fire by himself and put that sucker out. And I mean, I was like, holy smokes. I said, I have seen that determination and that grace and that goodness and that not on my watch will you perish heart before. I, I watched the embodiment of the Father, Son, and Spirit's love for the human race in that moment, laying down his life, possibly dying. He didn't know. And he put that fire out. And he comes back and he sits down on the, on the uh, ground and somebody gives him a water. And I literally prayed. I said, Lord Jesus, please do not let some g- good willing evangelical, so-called evangelical, Christian, go over to that guy and evangelize him Mm. as if there's no Father, Son, and Spirit in his entire being. Right. You see, so we we, we define spirituality like over here in church, and it has to do with the Bible and only certain translations of the Bible and prayers and doing doing good works. And and so we got to go get that guy saved because he's a good guy. Right. I'm thinking he's probably going to go to church Sunday and leave feeling bad. Right. All, all he does is fight fires. Right. You know, he can't serve God. Right. You know, the, the insanity of what we've been caught in and what we've called normal is just it's just wrong. And blessedly, the Holy Spirit is throwing light everywhere. Yeah. It's just astounding uh, the difference between now and 20 years ago. Just astounding. Yeah, and I think you're right, John. You you see what you skipped? You you you, <laughs> you you ducked out for 30 years, and you missed 30 years of bull crap. And then you're and now you're ready for the awakening because you don't have all this baggage of garbage that you have to unlearn. It's beautiful, yeah, it, man. It back in with a surfboard, it's already waxing. It looks like yeah. Oh, oh, I'm catching this wave. I'm catching this one. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, I love it. Well, it, it, I, it's funny because, you know, the, the catchphrase right now is deconstruction, right? Everyone's talking about deconstruction. And uh, people people want to ask, ask me about my deconstruction story. And I'm like, well, first of all, it happened 30 years ago. I didn't even know the word deconstruction. It wasn't being thrown around as deconstruction. It was, it, if anything, it was being thrown around as Oh, look, another one has yeah. lost his faith. Another one has walked away from the, walked away from the faith. He's heading down that slippery slope. You can fill in with it, whatever garbage phrase you want to put into that. And so I spent my deconstruction years outside the faith, looking into it, searching other faiths for what I felt I was missing because 
even though I wasn't a Christian or wasn't following that, I still felt like there was a hole, right? There was something missing in me and I was constantly searching for it. And um, so what I find interesting though, as I'm looking back into the church and as I was watching this, this unfold is just this idea that the cross was always plan A. And it was preached that way. That it's like, we always knew, God always knew that Jesus was going to have to die on the cross. Like, I'm going to make, I'm going to create the universe. I'm going to create Adam and Eve. I'm going to create all this stuff. And I, and you're going to mess it up. And I, and I'm going to, and, and I'm going to have to send my son and I'm going to have to put him on a cross and I'm going to have to kill him. And I call BS on that in the sense that it, what that does is it puts the, it puts the onus on God. It makes God a, a monster. It makes him wrathful and angry and mean. And the only way he can appease us is to kill his own son. And that's, that's heresy. That's the heretical thinking. Because as you, as I have heard you speak and I've heard you, you know, I've seen you in pulp, you know, face to face and you've talked about this and that's, can you, can you explain how we've lost our way? And that we, that this is what, this is the BS that we, that we buy into now. Well, first of all, we haven't, uh, a Carl Rahner, who was a Roman Catholic uh, theologian of the last century, he said, quote, we must be willing to admit that should the doctrine of the Trinity be proved as false, the major part of religious literature would remain virtually intact. And I wrote that, and that's, that's in my doctoral dissertation in 1989. And I sat, of course, that's what Torrance, the Torrance brothers are saying, that's what Bart was saying, that's what many others have said. But that's where it starts. It starts with the fact that we did not perceive God as Father, Son, and Spirit relationship. And the second error, you see this in the Garden of Eden, is that we begin to believe in separation which I consider the the lie of all lies, that we could be separated from God. And Calvin says if you get separated from, from God, you evaporate. So did, uh, that's the perennial tradition all the way back. Um, so you start off with G-O-D and not Father, Son, Spirit. So all the attributes of God or whatever you want to call it are going to be defined in a singular way like sovereignty and holiness rather than relational way. So to me, it's real. It's nowadays, it's like, okay, you start with Father, Son, and Spirit. They dreamed of, of creating something that doesn't exist for the sole purpose of sharing in their divine life. And they're committed to this because that's the way they operate is in commitment to one another. And they, they saw that we would botch it. But the whole plan from the very beginning was that, that God would be in Christ the Father would be in the Son, in the Holy Spirit, uh, putting things right and turning it around. The Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. This was never about something aimed at God to settle Him down so that He could then begin to love us. This was always the love story of I love you and not on my watch will you perish. Wow. Uh-uh. Yeah. Amen. Ain't happening. I will lay down my life. That's what we do. Is we we we're not self-centered in our oneness. We're other-centered. It's about love. So you got a big picture. You got Trinity. You've got the dream of adoption. 
uh, you got the the predestination of Jesus as the one in, through, and by, and for whom all things were not only created but would be fulfilled. And then you got what I call the secret, which is the gospel, the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory that we're called to proclaim. And then you've got the fifth part would be education. And I don't mean by that Western education. I, I mean by that Holy, Holy Spirit, soul education. This is who you are. This is who you've always been. You were duped. You were deceived. Now you know who you are. So let's begin the process of, of standing up and walking in this. And one of, one of my uh, favorite parts of the shack, um, that, that two favorite parts, but one of them is um, when McKenzie is having scones on the back porch with Papa, and he stands up and he, and he just says, you know, Papa, how can you possibly not be disappointed in me? After all the things that I've said about you, thought about you, after all the stupid stuff I've done, how can you not be disappointed in me? And Papa says, Mackenzie, uh, my numbers are not right here, I don't think, but if I know that it's going to take you 78 times, to fall on your face before you finally get up and think, There's, I'm going to go back. I'm going home. Or I'm going to walk to Papa. She said, I'm not disappointed when you're at 21. Mm. Only so many more times. So it, it, we act like sin was a surprise. Yeah. We act like Adam and Eve's debacle was a surprise. It wasn't even their fault. They were deceived. Right. And, and you think that God's going to create us, and then we get deceived, and he's going to blame us, and he's angry. No, I, that's just not part of the picture. So yeah. that that's the big macro picture. of it. We lost the Trinity, so now we got God, and we got God who's angry. And uh, God created heavens and earth. We bosh it. God is angry. Bless God's heart. He sent Jesus to fix it. And, and notice this. <laughs> John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, God was holy, and Adam sinned, and God's angry. <laughs> I mean, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face-to-face, pros. Yeah, pros. And right. was God. He was in the beginning, face-to-face with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not one thing came to being. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own people. His own people didn't receive him. And, you know, good evangelicals like, there it is, man. He was here. He preached. We didn't want him burned. <laughs> you know? right. And I'm like, I'm like we, we've known that bit from Genesis 3 all the way through all the prophets and all the way yeah. through his history. No, it's, it's, there's a movement in the prologue. And he came to his own. His own received him not. He didn't go back to heaven and say, hey, I tried. Uh-huh. Yeah. He gave it a shot. He says, and so, so the word became flesh. Not just human, flesh. That's anthropos or humanity twisted in delusion. The word who was in the beginning face to face with God the Father, the word in and through and by and for whom all things were created, the word that was in the world that the world did not know, the word, the word that became incarnate in flesh in Israel's history through Torah, through the prophets that they didn't want. So what? what's God to do? Oh, I tried, I tried. No, no, I'm going in, Father. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to get to the bottom of the delusion, and it's going to be ugly. And Papa's like, well, 
I don't do abandonment, son. You know that. But you're going to the place where it's going to get dark. But yeah. know this, I, I don't do abandonment. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, as I said, there's no way you're leaving the Holy Spirit out of that one. And yeah. so you've got this movement. That's the story. It's the greatest love story in, ever even dreamed up. And it's my friend, Dr. Bruce Walkup uh, in Adelaide, Australia, says, yeah, it's a love story, and we've turned it into a nightmare. Yeah. No, we really have. Well, because, you know, as, as you're talking about all of that and you're saying, you know, and it all resonates, by the way. But, you, you know, when Papa says, you know, since I don't do abandonment, but what is the entirety of Western evangelical theology centered around the fact that God will eventually abandon you? Like, I'm, I, like he loves you. And here's here's what I hate. I hate this anemic view of God that says, you know, sure, he wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of him. It's in scripture. We buy that. But God doesn't always, I guess, get what God wants. And so in his anemic power, he can't even undo what apparently Adam and his supreme power, what he did to us, God can't undo entirely. And I understand that there's a notion of, of consent and participation, and we have you know a part to play, I think, to some extent. But this anemic sort of hand-wringing, hands in the air, like, well, at some point, the, the, the unending mercy of God apparently will run out. And at that point, God will abandon and, and some go of back, us. Man, notice what you just said. That, that, not you, but no, yeah, notice yeah. God. All right, mercy, at some point, is going to run out. And yeah. then, then the Father, Son, Spirit going to go back to being what they always have been the whole time, which is really just God. Right, right. So that, and that God's unmerciful. Right. And this is where the psychological just mess that we create in the proclamation of the dodgy gospel and the pretzel logic that people are sitting there thinking, what what does this mean? What does this mean? Yeah. Well, it means, as I heard the other day, Sunday morning, that to be saved, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. What is repentance? Repentance is a wholesale forsaking of sin and a turning to Christ. I'm like, so in order to be saved, I've got to come to Jesus. But in order to come to Jesus, I got to forsake my sin. If I can wholesale forsake my sin, why do I need to come? It's like, (laughs) no, don't you understand? Wait, wait, wait. Preacher, don't you understand that your definition of sin is sinful? Yeah. Don't you understand the problem here is not that you're bad, but you're blind? So there's that need to us to sit down and say, Jesus. I got to have a reconstruction here. And so I I never have, I've never cared, as you were saying, John, I've never cared about deconstruction. That's just some fad. That's not the issue. The issue is Jesus says, he says, if you continue in my word, and there was no New Testament and no recording of Jesus at the time he said this, if you continue in my word, you will truly be my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So my question from 10 years old is, what is the truth? What does it mean to know it? And how does the truth set us free? So it's an announcement. Jesus saying, guys, there's something here that's true that you don't know. When you discover it's true, you don't make it true. You're discovering what is. And when you see it, it will set you free from all this stuff that you got going on. 
and your prestige and your position, the pomp and the pose and the and the theater and grandiosity and all those posturing and it's it's embarrassing. <laughs> it kind of is, isn't it? It's like, it's like, what are we? Come on, man. And, you know, I was a time in my life, and I'm sure John was the same way. And I'm sure, and, you know, there was a time in my life when I aspired to all of that. You know, I'm like, hey, I'm going to. And, and I think it comes from a, I don't think it comes from any place of malice or, you know, but there's just this underlying, you know, misunderstanding of what it is that we've been called to participate in. And um, like you said, it, it's self-serving and it's self-aggrandizing and it's all of those things. Um, and then the Holy Spirit comes and, and, and wrecks it in a very, very, very beautiful, good way. A redemptive way, always redemptive. Always redemptive. Yeah. So when you get, when you got connected up with, with, uh, with Paul Young, then did you know him before you read the book or did you read, read the shack and then kind of go, Hey, this is a guy I need to get to know. No, I'd never heard of him, and uh, he'd never heard of me. And um, I had finished uh, my book, Across All Worlds, um, in 2005, something like that. It had been sitting on my desk for a year, and um, I, I get an email from uh, a friend in Sault Ste. Marie, Canada, and uh, Wendy March. And she said, Wendy, she said, uh, actually, I've got a book uh, I want you to read. And I, you know, I'm thinking, here we go again, another pile of books, and best things ever been written. Yeah, but and I said, well, Wendy, I said, I promise, I know I'm from Mississippi, but we can read here, <laughs> and, and and a few of us can even write, you know. And uh, <laughs> and she said, well, I, anyway, I wrote, I wrote it down. In fact, I've got it somewhere, and I wrote William T. Young, and she had the ESPN number and all that stuff, and. I said, well, I, I promise I'll read it. I put it on top of my deer, deer stand reading pile, and you can see all the marks, and I'll read it. So deer stand, deer season opened. I had it in my backpack and went and sat on what I call the Cadillac stand, which is two chairs even nice like this, and lean back, and you can sit in your little you know, hut and watch. And, and I started reading and cried my eyes out. And, and uh, I, this, this part of the story Paul loves I got to end of chapter four when Missy had been murdered and pillaged. Uh, and I remember standing up in, in the Cadillac stand, shaking the book and said, William P. Young, I don't know who you are, but if you hand to me as the answer to this gut-wrenching, god-awful problem, the same old, same old distant God who's watching us from the infinite distance of a disapproving heart, as the answer to this, then I'm going to take your little book and I'm going to walk 200 yards down the path and lean it against a tree and I will personally eliminate this copy from the mm. columns. And then chapter five comes. Yeah. And I'm like, who in the world? And literally, there are two of these chairs in the, in the Cadillac stand, one empty, and I'm sitting there bawling my eyes out and the chair, I kid you not, the chair moves away and then turns moves towards me and this is what I heard hmm. and you didn't think I had anything up my sleeve <laughs> <laughs> that was Friday on Sunday afternoon uh, my son and I are watching Eli Manning play he's an old Miss guy oh, and he's playing with the New York football giants Sunday afternoon and I get a phone call and I, it's a 513 number, and I don't. I, I asked him, I said, do you know anybody that's 513 area code? He said, nope. 
and I I almost just hit mute and moved on, and I got the nudge, so I answered the phone. I said, hello, this is Baxter. Oh, Baxter, this is Paul Young. And I rack in my brain, I don't know a Paul Young. I don't. It's, it's William William P. Young on the, on the original edition. Right, right. Right, and I'm racking right. my brain thinking, wait, well, he's probably some guy you met in Australia in a, in a pub. You know, maybe you met him in Ireland or I mean, who knows, you know, I don't know. And I'm racking my brain. I said, well, how's your mom and them doing? You know, <laughs> I, I knew that he knew that I didn't know who he was. And yeah. for I could feel him smiling. So I think look, anyway, I said, are, are you? William Young? He said, yeah. I said, the William Young? He said, I don't know about that. I said, are you the guy that wrote The Shack? And he said, yes. And I said, why in the world are you calling me, man? The whole world wants to talk to you. This was like November of 2007. And he said, well, my friend, I mean, uh, I got a, an email from a guy that knows you and said, I don't know if you know Baxter, but if if he's written the theology that goes with the shack, you need to, like, to connect. So he put his phone number in there. And I, so I called you. Mm. <laughs> so I walked out into my garage and we talked for two hours and that's how we, and so wow. I, I hung up from that conversation. I called timber sale. who was the time was in North Virginia. He's now in Baltimore. And I was scheduled. This was November. I was scheduled in April to speak in his church and do a conference. And I called him right after. I said, Tim, I said, you send an email to Paul Young and you invite him to come and be a part of that conference. And you bring him in on Wednesday and you don't tell anybody. I said, because he and I are going to get together. So that's where we met was that uh, that Wednesday. We had adjoining rooms at the, I don't know, Holiday Inn or something in in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, And we sat and talked and talked and talked. And uh, I, I couldn't believe because he didn't know Torrance. He knew of McDonald, but didn't know him very well. He didn't. He he knew Athanasius was a hero in early church. So that's it. And so um, I thought, well, how did you get here? How did you arrive at this place where you begin to see God in this beautiful way? And I realized that he had gotten there through through hell. Yeah. And I'd gotten there through hell too, but it was a different version. Um, and so. Uh, that we just became instant friends from that point on, and I don't know. Two or three months later, we were in Toronto. I didn't know he was there. He, we were, you know, just doing conferences, and I found out that he was there. And I called him on Friday afternoon, and I said, "Paul, you're here. What are you doing this afternoon?" And he said, "I'm just in the hotel room." I said, "Well, I'm coming." So I went back. I went to uh, and found him. Found a hotel. I had somebody drive me over. We sat and talked the afternoon. Had dinner together that night, <laughs> and. It, one point, and I've got this somewhere in my piles of, I said, I pulled out one page. I'd just been to a Fringe University to teach on the theology of the shack. And I pulled out one page. I said, you want to know what the theology of the shack is? I said, here it is. I turned around, and the page is written down the side, this way, that way, up, down. You know, it's just, a, it, there's no, it's theological tongues. I mean, it's just, there's no way anybody could, could follow it. And Paul takes it and he goes, he said, yeah, that's exactly the theology. You need to write that into a book and, and I'll write the forward. Wow. 
And I'm like, is that like a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> he's just trying to get you to do the work for him. Is that what he's saying? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, and that was two thousand. That was November. I mean, uh, that was two thousand. Uh, sometime two thousand eight. Like you know. Yeah. And uh, so I started immediately on it and got it done in two thousand ten. But uh, I couldn't find a publisher. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, really yeah. crazy. I mean, because the publisher thought that. Well, they, they had self-published it at first, and it has shit over later. Right. Yeah. And and they kind of thought, well, it's you know Simon and Schuster. I talked to them, got to the to the the big meeting, you know, where they make, and they all said, well, it's kind of it's kind of done its thing now, and moved on. It, you know, they're looking at it like a fad. Yeah. That, that uh, one shot wonder. He he wrote a good book, and it's done its thing. And this was two thousand ten. Yeah, and it hadn't yeah. even begun to do its right. work. No, no, and I'm like, have you? So one of the Simon Schuster folks asked me, I can't remember the girl that was my editor there. Uh, she was delightful. She was from Louisiana uh, originally, and she said, "Well, the question they're going to ask me is they're going to say, well, why should we publish this book now? It's a little late. Uh, the Shack's done its thing.'" And I said, "I said, are you kidding me?" I said the shack spoke to the longing of millions of people around the world who are churched and unfulfilled. Yeah. And I said what I'm writing is just expanding it and 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 uh, rooting it in not only scripture but in the ancient tradition of the church and giving answers to the questions that that group of people have. So yeah. I don't know that you'd ever have an audience more ready, you know. And that what they came back and. They just thought it's kind of done its thing. And so eventually, the same people that published The Shack came back and said, we need to do this. But if, I don't know. I, I always felt like they were kind of like, well, yeah, we'll we'll do it. Uh, we'll, we'll get it. You know, and then boom, 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 all, all over the place. And Paul and I have got to travel a lot of cool places together to do series on The Shack, Shack Revisited. It's been a lot of fun and still going on. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. John, John keeps copies in his, in his car and I, I, I grab them wherever I see them. And, um, it, it, it it's just an easy thing to say, Hey, have you read this? This is really good. I, I give it to, to church members, you know, who are struggling with, um, with their, with their view of God. And it's, you know, it's, uh, stories do, and they have such a way of, 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 of getting past some of the garbage, you know, and just connecting. I, I told, yeah, I told Paul when we, cause we, we actually spoke to him and uh, Brad Jersak a little while back and cause uh, they had written that book, the pastor together. And so we, we had a chance to talk to him about that. But I, I remember telling him that I, I resisted reading the shack. Um, I had pretty young girls at the time and I got a, I got a whiff of, of some of that that was in the book and I had your same reaction. Um, but I didn't actually give him the benefit of reading it. I just made my decision. I said, no, because he's going to give me the same old crap yeah. that all these other guys do. It's all God's plan. He's, you know, blah, 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 blah. She's in a better place. I'm like, I can't do it, man. I just can't even. So I didn't. And uh, my wife persisted. And we uh, we listened to the audio book on a long road trip. And it, I, told, I told Paul, I just about wrecked my car, man. I'm sobbing. I'm crying. I'm like the audio. I mean, it's just it's just getting me in all the feels, and um, I don't know. It 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 has done more, in my opinion, and to 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 
revitalize and renew and restore the image of God to the world. And I don't know if anything in the last hundred years, you know, um, and then when I found your book, um, it, it, it helped to give it the, the underpinning that I, that yeah. I felt like I needed to go. Okay. I get this in my heart. Like it, it pings every part of my heart and says, yes, this is true. This is true. And then you gave structure to it and said, okay, yeah, but this is, this is why it's not heresy. Like, this is why it's not crazy. This is actually apostolic, historic Christian faith. And uh, so that that was a beautiful thing. Um, I do have to mention something before I forget. Um, I had lunch with a friend of yours not too very long ago, uh, Mike Miller. Yeah. And uh, he and his wife from Colorado yeah. um, had moved to Texas. And I was like, man, now that you're close, we can get together. And so uh, we we got together near Plano where they live now. And I was supposed to ask you, about um, your your issue with football, um, he he seems to think you got a you got a <laughs> he was trying to schedule you to come speak, and he said you kept going through dates, going well, no, nope, that won't work, nope, not that, no, nope, that won't work, and you finally got to a date when Ole Miss wasn't playing a home game, and you're like, okay, yeah, we can do it then. Is that <laughs> is he remembering that correctly? <laughs> well, yeah, Mike's memory subject, you know. He, uh, <laughs> if Marilyn would have told her, I would have believed. But she I, was right I, there nodding along. She said, I, uh, <laughs> I think the issue was twofold. <laughs> One was we had children in Oxford. Oh, so yeah. we were trying to go to some of the home games to be with them. The other was Ole Miss has a 30 year cycle. We suck for 29 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's two years where something happens. Uh, yeah, and you were in that upswing. And we were in that. We were in that two year period, and I'm like, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, no. I've, been trying, I've been trying for 25 years, 20 years at the time. I said, I. I yeah. mm, mm. <laughs> okay, so now, now that they're back to sucking again, uh, we could probably coax Wait, you out of. No, 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 no. Now we we got a little, a little. Oh, okay. Yeah. You can tell you how much how much I follow college football. My my, I went to I went to the University of Maryland. We don't know nothing about football. All right, um, my school is barely a college a basketball school. Well, we won a AC, you know, we did win a, a championship once upon a time, but um, we're not as bad as Duke. But our, our football program is not fantastic. But um, I just thought it was cool because of all the things I could ask you about. I thought you and uh, I love that I love that Mike um, was one of those guys that kind of found you a little bit early on and when he invited you to church to visit and to preach you he said that you told him that like well what could I say you know because you were still trying to find a place to, to say the things you wanted to say and he's like anything you want and in so, the United States yeah it's best to know Mike Mike in Maryland and Caleb yeah uh, just great honest open people that love life and um uh, Mike made a huge. He made a huge contribution that's still giving. Yeah, absolutely. You know, website and stuff, and um, uh, I loved them. I loved that. that. In fact, that's where I met uh, Brad Jerzak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, had, we had read a bunch of each other's books and things for years, and I knew of him. I think I'd done a couple of blurbs for some of his stuff, and then and then we met, and then we did like five conferences in a row in the next three to four four months and um and had a great time together now brad's um well anyway I'll, every, everyone we've talked to i keep saying they're one of my favorite people but they really are i mean brad's just a he's just a good guy 
He is. So we, we actually have a little Facebook group that goes along with this podcast where people can come and ask their, ask their crazy questions and not get judged and ridiculed and called heretics. And so we, uh, I put this out to the group and said, Hey, if you were going to have a talk with, with Baxter, what would you, what would you want to ask him? And so I've got a couple of questions from the group that one in particular, I think is really interesting. So my friend, Kelly Holland, who's a dear, dear friend, she wants to know how would we address or explain the seeming differences between the God that is represented in the Old Testament, this violent sort of retributive, unapproachable God, and the God that we see revealed in Jesus, who is open, relational, inclusive, etc. Uh, what, what do we do with that seeming contradiction? Not not seeding that it is one, but it, it certainly seems like it is. Yeah, that that's a question that, that can be answered on multi-levels. Yeah. Uh, level one is that God picked Abraham to work with because Abraham was as pagan as everybody else on earth. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> he's got to deal with someone who thinks that he's uh, evil and needs to be appeased. So if you look at the story of Mount Moriah, after the promises uh, that of what God's going to do in, in Abraham's descendants, he tells him to go sacrifice his son up on Mount Moriah, and Abraham, I mean, to me, one of the, Abraham didn't even balk because he's still functioning within, you know, the ancient paganism. He was from Ur of the Chaldees, which um, some folks have said uh, were moon worshipers. But basically, everybody in the world at that point was uh, lived in fear of the gods, and you had to sacrifice your firstborn and to get your crops blessed and to get protected, all that. And so anyway, the Lord says, go sacrifice your son. So he takes him up on the mountain and and, and binds him and, and is, takes the knife in his, you know, in the existential crisis of his entire being, life, and the Lord stops him. And uh, and there's a ram caught in the thicket, and, and uh, the Lord provides the ram in the place of Isaac. Um and he comes down off the mountain and he says, uh, Abraham, I'm going to teach you something about me. I, I'm not like you think I am. And my name is Jehovah Jireh, uh, which means the Lord will provide. The way this covenant relationship is going to work is that I'm going to take your side of the relationship and fulfill it. And you just, you just need to know that on the front end. I know you don't know it, and I know you. Know, but so you have this speaking and language, where you have God accommodating constantly where Abraham and his descendants are in their journey. Uh, he didn't want them to have a king. That's a concession. I don't even think, I don't even think he wanted them to have a priesthood. I think the ironic priesthood is a concession to to Moses' unbelief. God wanted to make Moses a, 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 the prophet, priest, and king um, figure. Um, anyway, anyway, you've got a, an accommodation, just like with your grandchildren. When your baby, your grandbaby's a year old, you get down on the floor, and you, you don't stand back with your Hebrew Bible and say, until you're fluent in Hebrew, and right. we can have a conversation about Obadiah, we're not talking. <laughs> right. no. I mean, what you do is you get down on the floor, and, and you know, you speak in tongues. Okay, well, now now we've got two things going on there. One is what you mean when you're speaking baby language, and the other is what the baby hears. 
And the prophets right. are somewhere in between those two. Yeah. They're, they're hearing and seeing something that is beyond their comprehension, and they're doing the best they can to put it together and unpack it. And at the same time, the people are hearing them, and they're hearing. So you've got this movement of revelation. Uh, I think uh, that we have the definitive word in Jesus. So, Jesus, in fact, the New Testament is saying that Jesus is Yahweh. Right. So now, now we've got a really good, wonderful Bible uh, problem. What this is what we see Yahweh doing here in the Old Testament. He's doing this. How do we deal with this? So. The, the basic answer to the question is you say, Jesus, would you be my rabbi? Yeah. I don't get this, and I want to hear from you, Jesus. Uh, that's that's at, at level one. And, and level two is it's fascinating that, that the Jewish people don't read their scriptures that way. They don't have that vision of God. That's a Western import back into the story. Uh, and then there, then there are the big ones, the big problems like the flood, like go into the land of Canaan and wipe out every man, woman, and child, and and sing with Uzzah and the Psalms where it's bash their babies against the head. I mean, there's some just horrendous stuff. And you've got a, you've got a, what Jesus? Is this you? Is this your father? Is it what's going on? How do we, how do we go about interpreting? So you got a lot of first order scholarship right now that's happening where they're reading it reading the story from the perspective of that Jesus is not plan B. He's the plan all along. So you've got God's view where he's looking, and you got our view where we're looking. And from where we're looking, uh, now here's a, here's an illustration, uh, a simple one. Uh, when I was a little boy, I was playing out in the backyard one day, and my mother comes out the back door screaming, and she grabs a hoe, is leaning there by the back uh, door, and she's screaming and running right at me. And I'm like, don't know what to do. Scared to death. She runs right past me and kills the snake. Now, in, in for the first 45 seconds of that scene... <laughs> Yeah, she's all coming I, for you. All I know is I did something stupid and I'm fixing to die. <laughs> you know, so I think there's some of that going on in the Old Testament that we have to we have to think through. But uh, practically, when you come across a passage in the Old Testament that is problematic or a psalm or a statement, then you write it down in a notebook and you ask Jesus, Jesus, would you help me with this? Because that's the only thing that's ever going to answer the question. You know, a good theological yeah. argument is good, but it's not going to answer the question. You need Jesus to answer that. Um, so I think what we have is the, the scriptures are inspired by the Spirit, and they're inspired in their interpretation, which means you can't, you can't read the Old Testament without the Father, Son, and Spirit. Right. If you do, you're not reading it according to the way it was written, which was inspired by the Spirit. And that, that doesn't require you to land in this sort of bizarre place where you're trying to make language be something that it's not, or even the bizarre place to where we have to have every single jot and tittle in the Old Testament is historically or theologically exact. Yeah. We yeah. get the definitive word in Jesus. Abraham, I'm going to teach you of alphabet. We're going to start on Mount Moriah. And I'm going to teach you about covenant. I'm going to teach you about prophet, priest, the king, and your people. And you're going to botch it, and that's okay. But by the time my son comes, you're going to have some fundamental ideas burned into your being that do not exist on earth in any other conversation. 
And then you're going to be able to see in the light of, of Jesus, you're going to go back and realize this is a magnificent love story. And uh, we did through. So that's that's the levels. I uh, I once got in some trouble because I uh, I, I posited this question to a, a pastor once. I said, you know, um, God comes to Abraham and asks him to take his son up to the mountain and sacrifice him. So what if Abraham said, no, nah, just not doing it. And God says, ah, okay, now we can, okay, you get it. <laughs> I would never ask that of you. I would never, you know, like, I, could we have saved decades, if not centuries of misunderstandings about God? Because Abraham, like you said, he never questions it. He just says, well, that's what gods do. Well, yeah, and, and I've always, you know, growing up, I've always been taught that this was a crisis of faith for Abraham, right? That there was this crisis of faith in Abraham and that this was God testing his faith. And when I came to the understanding that this this was just Abraham, when, when God says to sacrifice your son, the reason why there is no hesitation or anything like that is because that's the gods he believed in. That's what he expected. And then God basically turns the tables and says, yeah, that was never who I was. That's never who I wanted to be. And I need you to understand that. And yeah, I mean, it's, I, don't, I never understood this whole crisis of faith question. If, if you read back into that story and you put the Abrahamic story and its interpretation on the table as being of equal value, with the teaching of Jesus. Right. That No, it, what we've come to in Jesus, and it, here's another way of looking at it, it at least helps me. Um, when you're reading a novel, you have characters, you have the author, you have the characters, and you have you, the reader. And you're clipping along, and you're pretty much thinking about the story. You got it figured out, you think. And along about three-quarters of the way through it, something happens that you didn't see coming as a reader, and you didn't see it coming if you're a player in the story. Right. But once it's happened, you know that the author knew it, and now you're going to go back and reread the story from that perspective. And you're going to see all kinds of things in the story that the reader and the, the people in the story didn't have the capacity to understand at the moment. That doesn't mean that their understanding or was, was wrong, Right, it's there's just, just stuff immature. they missed. It's just yeah. I mean, it, it would be like me taking my granddaughter Caroline to Commander's Palace in New Orleans for uh, dinner. Uh, so it's one of the world's best restaurants. I'm sure she would enjoy every moment. But I don't think she would enjoy it on the same level as I would. No. And I'm nowhere near the level of chefs. You know, it's like... It doesn't mean that she would be wrong. It's just that we're in a process of coming to know something that's too beautiful for words. And uh, the reason that I uh, have such respect for the Scripture, and I've spent so much time, and now more so than ever, uh, paying attention to every single word, is because when you meet Jesus, you realize that your your capacity to, to conceive is outclassed. That your capacity to state, to articulate, uh, is it needs to be closer to silence. And then you read the Apostle Paul or John or Peter, or you read some of the passages in in Isaiah or in the Psalms, and you just marvel because those brothers, too, saw the same thing, and they did a really good job. And whatever else you say, you don't want to go against what they're saying. 
So that's the the real argument for the authority of Scripture to me is that that um, because you can believe that the Bible is an inerrant word of God and it's perfect and, and never read it. Yeah, absolutely. And you can be convinced. I, I, years ago, many, many years ago, I had a, a discussion with a guy who said to me, if you prove to me, if someone was able to prove to me that the Bible was errant, he said, I'd lose my faith. And mm. I said, I, I'm calling Scuba on that. He said, no, no, I will. I said, you, want <laughs> I said you, you don't believe because someone proved to you that this Bible is inerrant. He said, well, what's the basis of my faith? I said, you've met Jesus. Now, if you haven't met him and you believe the Bible's in there, Word of God, you hadn't met the Word of God. Yeah. Because he's the inerrant Word of God, the person. As Brad Jerzak likes to say, you know, the, the inerrant Word of God grew a beard when he was 18. That's right. I love that line so much. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and this guy just looked at me and I said, you don't, do not believe, you don't work from proof to belief. It works from encounter to a mad dash to conceive of that which you just met and know and loves you. And I'm trying to articulate something that's blowing my mind every time I see it and meet it. But but in the West, it's like I said earlier, we believe in the real absence of Jesus. And we're trying to prove that Christianity is right. So um, uh, even if we could prove it, and this is where Lewis started doing about faith, but even if we could prove it philosophically, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. What what do we have? We have a, a convert to our philosophy of religion. Yeah, we don't nothing have some, more. We don't have anything that that knows that has met Jesus and blown his mind. And so, uh, it, this is all part parcel of of how far we've we've lost our way. So is it is it kind of a symptom then? Because um, first of all, when you were talking about. Uh, the book you would read and then look back. I, I always think of the sixth sense, the, the movie, the sixth sense um, mm. with its big reveal at the end. Mm-hmm. And then I immediately went back and watched that movie again and went, Oh, how did I miss that? How did I miss that? How did I miss that? It was so painfully obvious. The twist ending wasn't even that complex. Um, but have we done this thing where um, in the absence of, you know, especially in the non-denominational world where I grew up, we, there's no, there's really no such thing as any sort of church authority. We have, we replaced, you know, the, we replaced that pope with a paper pope. That's right. Um, we've decided the Bible is the authority, and it's only our interpretation of the Bible. And we've, and then what I saw happen in my world was all that flat, all that scripture just got flattened out. Right. And and you didn't, you know, anybody who said that, that I would, well, if you put this verse against this verse, I'm going, I'm going to side with Jesus. Oh, you're just cherry picking scripture. You're not taking the whole counsel of God. I'm like, well, Jesus cherry picked scripture, so let's let's prioritize, you know. But what do you think about that? Have we have we just done that where we've we've just flattened it, yeah. made everything of equal importance that it's all the inerrant, perfect word of God, and and then try to do the mental gymnastics to make it all work. Well, and I, I will say this without any condemnation toward myself or anybody else. Um, because we're all right on schedule, but but the whole approach to scripture that way is is what you do when you haven't met Jesus. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. Back to John five again. You know, Jesus says, "I only do what I see my Father doing." What what is this that you've created? What is this that you manufactured? What is this religion that you've concocted? 
join me and participate in what I'm doing. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So you can memorize the entire Torah, the, the Old Testament. You can eat all the scrolls with honey and you don't have anything. None the, these point to me, and I'm I'm the bread of life that's come down from heaven. Not the manna, not the, the law or the, the book of instruction. That doesn't mean we throw it all out. It just means that Jesus is the point. And when you meet when you meet him, um it's it's an encounter with something that's breathtaking. And you know it's real, it's more real than you are. He is. And that's where we're moving. We're moving toward that. And Jesus said, walk with me. Walk with me. Um, scripture is important. Tra- tradition is important. Um, hymns are important. Um, the, the different books that were written after the New Testament, these are important. But if you think that it's in them, it's not. It's in me. He's bear witness of me. And you, that's, that's the disconnect. So... I would much rather have a person meet Jesus and wrestle with him um, uh, and, and to conceive of it and to articulate it than I would someone that, that doesn't even know that it's about meeting Jesus, that think it's about the external behavior. All right, Jesus is up there. He's watching. Somebody tell me the 10 things I need to go and do. All right, gentlemen, let's have a study on joy. Uh, what are the five principles of joy that I can apply to my life? And so now my joy is only as good as I can apply joy to my life, which is all crap. It's like you need to fall in love. Yeah. When, when I was able to, to let that go, that the Bible is in the inerrant word of God, it did, it did the exact opposite of what I was told it would do, right? I was like, well, you, you, you no longer have faith in it. You don't believe in it. You're going you're gonna to lose your connection to the divine. And instead, I saw what I was told was an, a book of instructions on how to live my life became a book that was a love story of a God pursuing a, a, a people who, who sometimes just got it wrong and he was willing to pursue them still. And I mean, I, I, I think Nat and I talk about the prodigal son, right? And the prodigal son, I think, is like the, the, the ultimate version of what the whole Bible is, this unending pursuit of God for us. Yeah, well, both, and I wouldn't say there's a prodigal son. I'd say that all three of those stories, right? Yeah, both, but both sons. And, yeah, oh, yeah. And Jesus actually right. leaves the older yeah. religious son lost in his yeah. own religion. That's right. The, the story's not resolved because that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to that group of people. Right. Um, and it's interesting. He says, Father... I have never neglected a single command of yours. And yet this whoremongering sons of yours comes in from the far country. We all know what he's been doing. And you go all out with a feast. You've never given me a feast or a lamb that I can have a feast with my friends. And he's just the unfairness of from his perception. But there it is. Right. It says at the beginning of the story. Yeah. Jesus says he divided his wealth between them. That's right. So the older brother owned right. all the lambs to begin with. Yeah. And he's angry with his father because in his obedience, he thinks he deserves this and his father never will give it to him. He's as lost about his father as the elder, as a younger son. Is. Yeah. I think in some ways, you know, I've, I've preached this before and actually not that long ago, but I, I preached the, um, I, in many ways, the, the older son's way more lost. 
uh, at least the younger son knows he's lost. Like, well, like he, he knew enough to get off his ass and come home. Um, and the older one still stands outside the party with his arms crossed, you know, and, and I, I, I agree with you. I think the primary audience of that is the, the religious people who had gathered, you know, outside the circle to sort of eavesdrop on the conversation. Um, they were angry with Jesus because he was hanging out with sinners. Yeah. How dare he? If you go back to what kind of self-respecting rabbi are you? Yeah. Think of the the relevance of that story of the prodigal and the religious son for the context of modern or to America today, because you basically have the humanist and the religionist. The humanist, even though he has to use his father's money, nevertheless is going to go create his own utopian society. Right. And he, he falls flat on his face eventually, and he comes home. The religionist is going to find his way back to God and he, on his own terms. Yeah. And he's still working the program and still angry. So yeah. when you look at modern America, there you have it. You have the humanists who are determined to create a utopian society without any reference to God or Jesus uh, or the Holy Spirit. And then you have the religionists who are thinking, this is the way to do it. This is the five steps to the kingdom. This is how we bring it down. This is what joy is now. And just working an external religious program back to John 5 where Jesus says, I'll only do what I see my father do. What is this? Yeah. What is this? What, what, and he's speaking to both groups. What, what, you think this is utopia? Yeah. You think this is the kingdom of God? Well, maybe you need another 200 years. <laughs> Let's hope not. No, I don't know. I'm sure we can take another 200 years, yeah. man. The, uh, well, and with, I was just saying within that, within that, this, that, that parable, you know, you have the three stories, right? Uh, you have the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin. I find it interesting that we, we, we grab onto the prodigal son, the one that leaves, but to make the three kind of work together, the first one, the shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep. The second one, the woman goes and finds the lost coin. And the third, the father goes and finds the lost son. The only one he goes and finds is the older brother. He doesn't, he doesn't go and find the younger brother. The younger brother comes back. But the, I find it interesting that really to connect the three together, you have to, you have to look at the older brother as, as, as the other prodigal. And um, I think we, we spend so much time talking about the one that went away and we don't look at how those three connect with how the father will. That's, that's because we are the older brother. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, in that sequel, you've got the shepherd. Yeah. You've got the father. And in the middle, you've got the woman. And what does she do? She does. She scours. That's a beautiful word. She scours the house. Yeah. Until she finds a coin. So I think you got the Father, Son, and Spirit right there. Jesus is just laying it out. Yeah. No, I think it's just beautiful. Well, I like Brad always points out, and the first time I heard him say this was great, but he said, you know, we have the story of the of the of the of the coin that goes missing and the woman searches and she scours the house for how long? Until she finds it. Until she finds it. You know, and so he the the shepherd looks for the lost son or for the lost sheep for how long? Until he finds it. So there's this relentless pursuit. You know, Jesus could have told any parable, any story he wanted to, to paint any picture of God that he wanted. And he paints this picture of a God who is relentless in his pursuit of those things he finds valuable and that have gone missing somehow. And sheep are dumb and coins are inanimate. And so it's almost, there's like, there's almost like there's no blame here. 
you know, coins just go missing sometimes. Sheep just sometimes wander off, but but you have a good shepherd and you have this this woman who will come and look and scour the earth for you until they find you um, and, and not just leave rejoice. you in a ditch. And then they rejoice and throw a party. And then they rejoice and throw a party. And the religious people get mad. <laughs> God rejoice. Yeah, it's a it's a quite stunning. All of his parables are that way. If you really just stop and read them, yeah, uh, most all of his parables speak directly to the church. Yeah, now that's no, yeah, and I'm uh, I'm actually in a sermon series right now where we're going through parables, and I and I started off this series saying um, a lot of Jesus's parables are subversive. The second week I said, you know, most of Jesus's parables are subversive, and last just last week I said, okay. All of Jesus's parables are subversive. They are absolutely undermining all kinds of preconceptions and institutions and taking the church to task. And if we're paying attention, they have an awful lot to say to us right, right this second. You know? Well, it's, he's, he's fundamentally after religion yeah. and it's assumption of separation. And I know how to get back. Yeah. If I can draw, and that's all we, 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 preach this is the way back and if we get a big enough crowd then the crowd number in our country proves that we must be doing something right and so the bigger the more proof and so now all we're interested in getting you guys to come join us because if you guys come join us it makes us look like we've got the answer and all of that's under the umbrella of i'm only doing what i see my father doing what what's this about you know and it's not a condemnation it's like I'm asking you what it's about because so you'll see through it, so you'll join me because I'm here. And I'm not just sitting twiddling my thumbs. I'm constantly at work doing what I see my father doing. Come participate. Yeah, that's, that, that is the theme, John, isn't it? Have you keep, I keep hearing this, um, and I've heard this now uh, from a handful of people, um, but it's really interesting that, that this, this idea of participation and cooperation just keeps coming up over and over and over again as though it's almost like the church has um, sidelined itself in some ways um, waiting for God to come in and do what God does. And all along we've been invited to be participants and, and, and cooperate with him and his plan. And so um, I, I think you're right. There is an awakening happening. Um, call it what you want. Um, I, but I, I hear it more and more and more and more. And, and as people are starting to kind of get their ears tuned um, to this original gospel, you know, this, I don't know, I just, I, th- I, th- I think it's going to be unstoppable, but you're about to say something, John. Well, I think, I, I think the people in the church have heard this idea of, you know, be the hands and feet of Jesus for so long and watched the, the religious elite do the exact opposite that they have finally woken up and said, well, yeah, but we're not. And it's time that we are. And that's where you call it an awakening, call it whatever you want to call it. But I think that's, that's part of what we're seeing is, and it's, um, it's, it's, it's exciting to see that people are like at the point where they, they're willing to call out the religious elite and say, yeah, but you never have been. You've never been the hands and feet of Jesus. And if you aren't going to do it, we're going to do it. Yeah. And then, and then there's another piece to that, which is, we have to graduate from the sacred-secular uh, di- dichotomy before we're in a position to discern what Jesus is doing. Uh, because we're still going to define that as uh, Bible study, theology, prayer, 
uh, these things, and we're not going to see motherhood and fatherhood and friendship and baking bread and collecting garbage. And we're not going to see Jesus in everything. So I've got this little uh, five-minute video that Michael Lafleur put together for me called "The Sacred Presence," um, and the mantra that runs through it is is uh, the recognition of the sacred presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit in every person, moment, and place is the beginning of wisdom. Wow. Or it's the end of religion and the beginning of seeing what is. Yeah, yeah. In, in the kingdom of God. So I'll tell a quick story, and, and i gotta, I got to get rolling. Um, uh, many years ago, I think I was in Australia, maybe New Zealand, but somewhere in that part of the world, and I would spoken – and this afterwards, we're having tea, and I was standing around, and this this young Asian woman comes up to me, and she's bawling her eyes out, and she's holding a little baby, and she, she's just bawling. And I mean, it takes a while, but I, you know, this calm down enough to talk to me, whatever. And she finally calmed down. And she said, "She said, Baxter, she said, in my town, there are two Pentecostal or charismatic or whatever churches, but we've both been praying and fasting for over a year." for the Holy Ghost to fall. And she said, the Holy Ghost fell on the other church and didn't fall on us. And we're devastated. And the pastor just wanted me to ask you if I got a chance to, you know, what you thought about that. And, um, of course, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, now would be the time to give me a little download here. You know, um, And it, it, and out, out it began to come. I said, well, is this your baby? And she said, sure it is. And I said, do you love this baby? She said, well, of course I do. I said, would you give your life for this baby? She said, well, I said, in actual fact, you do. You give up pretty much all day, every day, taking care of this child. And she said, yeah. I said, well, I don't know what constitutes the Holy Ghost falling in your world, but I know this, that in 10,000 years from this very moment, when all of this is gone, that baby's still going to be alive, and that baby's still going to be calling you mama. And you don't see any Holy Ghost in that. Through your very being and body has come into existence a creature, a child of God that did not exist, and has come into being in and through and by the Father, Son, and Spirit, through your union with your husband, has come into being. And once conceived, that child will never disappear. Heaven and earth may disappear, but your child will not. And I said, you, you, you define the presence of the Holy Ghost. It looks like this. It happened there, and we've been left behind. And you're holding a child, a divine human being, and you don't see what it is. So that's what I mean by the recognition is that all of a sudden we, we redefine. We're looking for the presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit in every person, moment, and place. Because we know that's true. And once you see that, and I tell people again and again, when you see it, you are free to respond. That's what participation means. Because we're Americans, and, and damn it, we're going we're gonna, to oh, we're gonna do participation in the church this year. What does it look like to participate in the kingdom? <laughs> yeah, Make me a list. That's the Pharisees again. What does it mean to tithe? You know, it, it's like, no. So you have to have presence. You have to have union first. Now we can begin to see, and now we begin to free to be ourselves and free to love and care. Because, uh, um, you know, I think sometimes I, this lady was asking me about tithing. Or I get that question a lot. Uh, like, Jesus doesn't want you to tithe. 
He wants you to walk with him. And there'll be days where he says, take your wallet out and give it to that guy. Yeah, for sure. You know, and there'll be other days where somebody will come to you with their wallet. You know, this, yeah. this thing doesn't work by externals. Yeah. This, this is union relationship and participation. And Jesus may even ask you to lay down your life. I don't want 10%. Give it all right now. Yep. Well, and if we've, if we've resigned ourselves to the 10%, then I'm not looking for the opportunities for the other because I get to go, well, I checked the box and I'm good. For years, we've talked about that in church and how you know, I absolutely believe that God is, is, is intending for us to live generously and to live holding things loosely. And, um, but man, the second that obligation thing comes down, I get my, my hackles get raised and I'm like, there's, there's no relationship in requirement. Um, relationship requires a give and take, you know, and that means that we're open and we're listening to what God would say to us moment to moment. And so, and I love it, man. I, I love that we bring it full circle back to this thing. So we will close it down because I know you got stuff to do and I got a grandkid waiting outside of my door. So um, we're about to go have Chinese food and uh, he's not very patient, but the, uh, <laughs> but the full circle thing is coming back to this thing where we see, um, and that's something my grandson has taught me, you know, much better than I ever did with my children, but um, that I see sacredness in Chinese food with my grandson later. That I see that I see um, God permeates all of those relationships and all of these opportunities to to interact and um, and I don't I no longer divide my life up into this secular sacred thing, um, which I don't think God ever intended for us to do. So and 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 think about this uh, as a way of wrapping out my, at least my side of it. When you don't treat the Chinese person as an outsider, but you, you're able to relate to them and their giftedness and what they're putting on the table, so to speak, uh, for us, you relate to them as a, a participant in the sacred presence. Yeah, you absolutely. You value them and value their dignity, and something happens inside of them. Yeah. You know, as you recognize, you're not just paying them for a service. You're way beyond paying them, and you're recognizing that this is a gift for God to you and to your grandson. Yeah, and we and then we and then we do what what, what Paul Young says, and we trust the ripples. Yeah, which I still think is a beautiful thing that he says. So, yeah, I, I don't I don't have the uh, I don't have the joy of grandchildren uh, yet, but you'll but know, I do man. Have, but, I, but I do have, but I have adult children who don't live here anymore, right? And one of the joys that I now get is my children coming home for like like Sunday dinner. Right, which wasn't wasn't part of my life until they until they moved out, and yeah, there's sacredness yeah. in those moments that, um, and it took me until they were adults to realize what I what I probably should have yeah. been seeing no, the whole I, time that there was there was sacredness in those moments. Well, you're seeing it now, right on schedule. That's right, right on schedule. I love <laughs> it, and right on schedule, yeah. we're closing it down. So hey. Uh, this, uh, this, this is, uh, this, I was going to say this is not church, but Baxter will push back on that. So this is sort of church. Um, we've had a, maybe we just changed the name of this title already, John. We're getting too much pushback. This is kind of like church. This is, but man, connect with Baxter on perichoresis.org. Um, buy his books, man. Watch his videos. Check it out. We got yes. all kind of classes. Yes. All kind of classes. I suggest you devour anything and everything that you can because you will come away blessed and you will come away changed. And that's always the best Absolutely. endorsement I can give. And literally my grandson is banging on the window. I'll be out in a second. <laughs> give me one minute. 
I'm done. Okay. I love you guys, man. I got to go. <laughs> See you. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.